I left and it was raining cats and dogs and the wind was howling on Christmas Eve. Drive 780 miles to Virginia. They'd already had 20 inches of snow and uh, most of it was still there. Then I come back on New Year's Day. Leave Virginia, it's 40 degrees at 9 a.m. in the morning, get back here at 10.30 at night, and I don't know how cold it was, all I know is, is that I almost stepped out of the van without a coat on and almost died. So uh, then I saw this morning that it was, uh, you know, I checked a while ago, it's still minus six. I'm going, oh my gosh, why did we come back here? <sighs> Good question. Then I looked and I guess I could be, it's all with comparison, in International Falls had minus 36, is there air temperature yesterday. I thought that was nice. And I'm going like, oh, how does anybody stand that? I guess you just stay inside a lot, right? That's what the deal is. One of the things that always drives us at any time of year, but particularly at the beginning of a new year, is the question of what is this new year going to be like? There's a a passage of scripture that has always intrigued me because of how many things it says. And it's a very simple passage over in Proverbs 29. Uh, That passage simply says this. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And there's also that same verse in another translation that says this, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. The interesting thing about the, the idea of vision is that, uh, is that so often we think that vision is something that, uh, that only those people who are, you know, visionaries have. But all of us live our life, in a sense, by some vision. It's either given to us, uh, the vision we have or the purposes that we live life for is given to us by something that we decide or somebody else makes it for us. It's the default vision we live by, the, the purposes that we live for. I was very, very much aware of that this past week when last, actually last Sunday, I was at my parents' house in uh, Salem, Virginia, and my dad and mom go to a little Methodist church there. They used to go to a Baptist church, and then I go to Methodist church, and went there for the service on that Sunday, last Sunday, while you were here, or some of you were here. I understand it was extreme. The weather was not too good here last Sunday, and uh, I went there, and it began to remind me of how often in life we simply become settlers instead of being the pioneers that God wants us to be. That's the something that kind of the, those two phrases, pioneers and settlers, is, is a way in a sense to, that I think about when I think about how we deal with life, particularly from the standpoint of, a Christ, of the Christian life. Uh, a, a pioneer is someone who is willing to move forward, is someone who, is, uh, em- who embraced the risk of the trip. If you think of the old pioneers in the West, somebody who endured, was willing to endure hardships, somebody who, in a real sense, um, uh, saw life as a gift to live. And the reason they saw that was because they saw something ahead that was worth taking the risk. Whereas a settler, after the pioneers went forth into the west and they, they settled, they went to a place. Settlers were people who, once they settled, kind of played it safe. They tried to embrace certainty. They, um, they saw life as a possession to be guarded. In my early experience as a Christian, 
When I was 14 years old, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That time, I was at a Christian concert, and, and right after that, I went to a Christian camp. And I remember at that camp, the speaker there at the camp challenging all of us teenagers to go and share our faith with our friends because God wanted us to live dangerous lives, lives that took risk and was able to because it was worth it because the most important thing that we can do in life was to share with somebody else the greatest gift that we'd ever been given, and that is the gift of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, I went from that camp and I remember going and not really knowing a whole lot about uh, how to share my faith, what that meant. I remember going and sharing my faith with a, with a guy that I knew at school. And uh, actually he listened. I was amazed. And he began over a period of weeks, began to talk to me about stuff. And I didn't know, I wasn't deeply theological. I mean, I was like a straight C student in school. I was, you know, didn't... <clears throat> I didn't study much, didn't do all, but the thing was is that I went, didn't have a lot of knowledge, but what I knew, I was willing to risk. And it was the most exciting thing that I, I can remember in my life happening then and happening several other times over the next several years was being able to lead people to Christ, be able to share with them what I knew about the faith and seeing them come to faith and be baptized. I remember when I was 19 years old, I was asked to, to work at a, uh, to, to volunteer at a Baptist children's home there and to teach a bunch of, a bunch of kids who were like in junior high. I was 19, they were in junior high. And I went there and I mean tell you, this, these kids were, I knew one day that, uh, these kids were not in the same, they didn't come in the same environment as this because I got locked out of my car. And one of the kids said, no problem. I said, what do you mean, no problem? I don't have a key. I can't. He said, no problem. He grabs some kind of a coat hanger, take, bends it once, goes, gets in my car. I said, where did you learn that? He said, my big brother. I said, how did he teach you? Oh, that's right before he went to prison. But I was able to share with those kids about some things that I knew, and I didn't really know a lot of things. And the reason I did that was because, in a sense, I was a pioneer. I was willing to risk the things that I knew, the little bit that I knew, in, in faith and to take those risks and even endure, maybe if I didn't know the answer, ridicule sometimes. Because I saw life as a gift to be used. But the sad thing was, over the next few years, I became kind of civilized. I mean... You know, I didn't know a lot of things, so later on in life, at my church I went to, uh, they began to civilize me because they began to teach me about, well, you can't just share just anything off the wall about faith. You've got to have a process. And so I went through training. I went through evangelism explosion. I went through continual witness training. I'm talking about long-term things where I could, you know, share the faith in a, in a, real, in a real way. And, you know, if, I, if I'd have known all those things back then, I'd have probably done a better job. But in the real sense, I became, the process was more important than, taking the risk and you had to do all these things and to go through the process and and so often what happens when we become civilized as a church when we become settlers what we do is we simply begin to focus on ourselves and like i said i was never more aware of that than this week when i was at my dad and mom's church i'm not it's not an indictment on the church but it's like so many churches so many people that have out there who are go, who are civilized they've simply gone through the process as my dad will tell you he's he's frustrated <laughs> with the lack of reaching people for Christ, because my dad's always been one who has gone out and, and shared his faith and, and helped people and done those things. And as I sit there last Sunday morning, and we went through the motions, and I looked around, and I saw a church that maybe had 50 people, 60 people in it. They had a children's story. Three kids came up. 
That was under the under fifth grade and under. That's all the kids were in that church. They're not reaching anybody because they become settlers. They're civilized. I even realize sometimes that one of the problems we have is we even put God in our denominational box. I don't know what, where you grew up, what kind of background you have, no, no Christianity background, Catholic background, Baptist background, Methodist background, you just name whatever it is. We all put our God in our little box and we, take, we perceive of God, our vision of God, in a sense sometimes is based upon that perception and we limit who God is. This morning what I want to do is I want to spend some time looking at a passage of Scripture that I believe teaches us about the attitude that we need to have, the, the, the attitude, the pioneer attitude that God wants us to have, the uncivilized attitude that God wants us to have toward living the Christian life. It's kind of an unusual passage because uh, where it comes, but as we read it this morning, I want us to think about what it has to say because it gives us a good insight into what God wants us to be, and, and it helps us to understand this passage about you know, where there is no vision, the people perish, because God wants us to live a life that's full. He wants us to live a life that's beyond just the everyday humdrum. He wants us not just to get up every day and go, okay, I'm going to work today, I'm going to get up, I'm going to make it, you know, do this, I'm going to do that. He wants us to live a life that's on, where we take risk for him. A life that's worth living. So this passage is over in Matthew 11. You have your Bibles today. You can turn with me to that. Matthew chapter 11, we're going to read a few passages today. And then I'm going to comment on them and talk about what this means to us. And I'm going to do something kind of old-fashioned today. I grew up in a church for many years that every time we'd read scripture, we would stand together and read it. The reason we did that was because we considered scripture to be something sacred and holy. And and when we stood, it means that we were taking it seriously. You know, when somebody of royalty comes into a room, what do people do? They stand. So this morning, I want to ask if you to stand with me this morning and allow, allow me to read this to you. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along in Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, the first few verses, about 15 verses here. And then we'll talk about this this morning. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He is the one, he who has ears, let him hear. And then verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right 
by her actions. Let's pray. God, I just ask you this morning that you would take this, these words, that you would use these words to help us to see a vision of what you want us to be as believers. A vision of what it means to be the church that follows the biblical mandate of, of, being, of, of Christianity. That we would not be people who simply allow ourselves to become too civilized, too settled in what we do. But help us to become people who are pioneers. Who are willing to live the life that you want us to live. Even when it's uncomfortable. Help us to be the uncivilized persons who you can use as you use John. Guide us this morning, help not only to us, for us to be able to, to hear your word and to understand your word, God, but to act upon it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. These first few verses in Matthew 11, verses 1 and 2 and 3, say this to us. It says this, let me just read these again. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And this is interesting. And when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus a question. It's an interesting question, but particularly it's interesting that John would ask this question. And the question is this, are you the one who was, who was to come, or should we expect someone else. I mean, you and I, when we go through difficult times in life, we often ask this question of God. Maybe not in those words, but we often ask, God, are you really God? If you're really God, you'll do something about this. Or you'll do something differently than what I am seeing. But we have to understand the, the circumstance that John was asking this question and the relationship that John already had with Jesus makes this an unusual question from John. For instance, I mean, how do we know the background of John? John, John the Baptist, was the cousin of Jesus. He had a history with Jesus. The Bible tells us uh, in, in, in Scripture, it tells us that when Mary, who was Jesus' mom, and Elizabeth, who was John's mom, they're both the babies were in the womb, that they came, Mary comes into the room where, where Elizabeth is, and the baby in, in Elizabeth, John the Baptist, leapt within her womb because it recognized, I don't know how that works, it recognized that this was the one that was to come. I mean, that's the first encounter. John, I'd already, and I'm in, you know, pre-birth, recognized that this was the one to come. Later on in Scripture, John the Baptist comes preaching, it says. He's preparing the way for Jesus to come. And then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, John recognizing that he, this is the man who's come to take away the sins of the world. And then Jesus asks John to baptize him. And when he does so, they have this little conversation. John says, I am not worthy to baptize you. I sh you should be baptizing me. And they go back and forth. Jesus says, no, do this. And when he does that, when he comes up out of the water, the coolest special effect in all of history happens and a dove comes down from heaven, a voice from heaven saying, this is my son in who I am well pleased. John knew all these things. He knew that this was the guy. So why in the world does he ask a question like, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? 
Why that question now? After knowing all the, this is, this is, this question is after all the things I just explained to you. He knew this was the guy. But John's circumstances had changed. He was now in prison. So why is he asking the question? Well, it's a fairly simple, straightforward answer, and it's in the next few verses. Verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor, and the good news is preached to the poor. I mean, what a resume. I mean, you and I would like to have a resume like that. I mean, do all these things. I mean, if that doesn't prove that this is the Son of God, what does prove it? But then he adds one little strange verse. Uh, the strangest verse we have to really look at the context because if we don't, we don't understand what it says. He adds this one little verse in verse 6. He says, now after all these things, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This is Jesus speaking here. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I mean, what a strange thing to say. I mean, how many of people have you heard fall away from God because God did something miraculous in their life? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, people just run away from God when they see him healing people or, or when, when, you know, when he changes their life and things happen in their life. That people run away, right? No, it doesn't happen. But Jesus says this, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. What is he saying to John here? What he's saying is this. John, in the context of where you are, yes, I am the man. Uh, Jesus says, yes, I am the man who has done all these things. I raise the dead. I heal. I do all these things. Yes, I'm the man who you know to be the Son of God. And also, John, I want to let you know something. Yes, I am the one who's going to allow you to remain in prison and even die for me. You see, the pioneer, the uncivilized Christian, which John the Baptist was, sees Jesus differently than the one who has been civilized. The civilized view of Jesus says that Jesus always comes through for us. He's there to protect us. His optimal purpose in our lives is for our, is, his optimal goal is our safety, our comfort, our convenience. And it's wrapped up in this, this really great theological statement, which you and I have all we, we've heard before and we may have even said. Pop it up there. Next statement. The safest place to be is in the center of the will of God. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that great? Isn't it unbiblical? One of the most unbiblical statements to ever it is. Because we have to understand. Do you think that John thought that that was true when he's in prison and he just hears from Jesus that he is going to be left in prison? That really, I am the man who does can do all these things, but John, because of what I want you to do, you're going to remain in prison. You're going to eventually die. What about the Apostle Paul? I mean, if anybody was ever close to the center of the will of God in all of history, it was the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote about half or more than half of the New Testament. I mean, would you agree with me that Paul was probably close to the center of the will of God? Well, if that being the case, keep that in mind. You know what it says in 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians. You might, if you have your Bible, you might have turned there. It's the second. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 23 and following. Here's the guy who is close to the center of the will of God. This is what he says about himself. Paul says, 
Are they, are they servants of Christ? He says, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews, and the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea, and I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. You get the point, Right? This is the guy who was in the center of the will of God. And for us to say, yeah, the, in the center of the will of God is the safest place to be, it's, it's just not true. See, when we become civilized, for some reason we get this idea that civilization, that, that God's purpose is to make us comfortable. Where in the world do we get that idea? I believe we got it because we created a religion in Jesus Christ's name where we taught people that God's optimal desire is for you to live in an insulated, isolated bubble where you risk nothing, you sacrifice nothing, you lose nothing, and you worry about nothing. You see, Jesus' death wasn't simply to free us from dying but to free us from the fear of dying. Are we losing lights? There we go, okay. But to help us to, from the fear of dying. Jesus came to liberate us so that we could die up front and then live. Think about that. That we would die to the fear of death up front so that we could live in spite of the difficulties. Jesus wants to take us, his vision for us is to take us where only uncivilized pioneers are willing to go. People who have died to self, only they can go there. And I wonder how many of us, though, in the light, after we've been Christians for a while, have become settlers. We've become civilized. We began to focus more on ourselves than this mission, this vision that God has given to you and given to me. You know, I believe some people have become embittered with God because we're confused about our faith. We believe that God doesn't come through the way we expect him to because we have this, this civilized view of God that he's, it's all about our comfort. Maybe the power of the church is lost because we keep inviting people to step into the comfort and the safety and the security of Jesus Christ. We keep, keep telling people that Jesus is going to bless you and he's going to bless you and he's going to bless you and he's going to give you more and he's going to give you more and he's going to give you more. And we've become just like the materialistic world And we become more and more self-centered. And maybe we need to step back. And what we really need to do is to say to people this. We need to say what Jesus Christ did for us is worth dying to self for. What Jesus wants us to do is he wants us to throw ourselves at his feet. And say if it means living a life of hardship and maybe even suffering. It's worth it because it is more fulfilling to follow Jesus Christ than to have everything in the world without Jesus Christ. Have we forgotten that? Have we become so civilized, so settled, settled that we have lost our way? 
That we have no vision for what it really means to be a follower of Christ. And because of that, we go through the motions without really experiencing what God wants us to really experience. You know, back a few years ago at 9-11, we all know what 9-11 is now. 9-11 has taken on a new significance. Those numbers have taken on a new significance for us. Because for some reason, if we never understood it before, once 9-11 happened, what happened to us was this, is that we, be- we began to realize something, that we cannot choose when and how we die. We only have the choice to choose how we live. I think it brought to forward, if nothing else, it did that for us. How many of us are in the place where John the Baptist was as he said to Jesus, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'm willing to lose everything on your behalf, Jesus, because that is worth it. You see, the pioneer, the uncivilized, sees Jesus differently than the civilized Christian. Also, Jesus' disciples, for the look, look, his, his followers, look differently as well to the uncivilized pioneer. His followers look different. Let's follow along the next few verses. Verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you so you will, who will prepare the way before you. And a little bit later, Jesus, in verses 18, he throws out this dilemma. He says this, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man, talking about Jesus himself, came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, the religious establishment and people in that day were not satisfied with what what it meant to, to be a follower of Christ, what a follower of Christ looked like. They couldn't even decide what it looked like. They had this idea in their mind, this civilized idea, and Jesus or John did not fit the, fit the mold. What is Jesus saying about John? He says disciples of Jesus Christ, Christ look different than you might think. I mean, how many of you would expect John to be the one who was chosen to prepare the way for the Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the world? I mean, if we were to pick a person out of all the people in the world to be the one who was to prepare the way of the Lord, would we have picked John, the schizophrenic, ADD? God would probably in our world today would be considered manic depressive. I mean, would we ever have John the Baptist here to speak at Great Oaks? Probably not. Would he be your best buddy? Not unless you were kind of that way as well. The question for me is this then. If this is what the person who looked like who was preparing the way for Jesus, then why should a disciple, what should a disciple of Jesus look like who comes after Jesus? How is it possible that for many of us to be a good Christian in our world today, the civilized view is that you mean you're a good, a good citizen? You see, the entire focus, it seems, of Christianity for us many times today is, is, to, is, to, is the elimination of sin rather than the unleashing of a unique, original, extraordinary, unbelievable life that God wants us to live. 
You know, if we look at the Apostle Paul once again, probably one of the greatest Christians I consider of all time who wrote and gives us more information about specifically about living the Christian life than anybody. If you look and read the book of Romans, especially Romans 7, Paul was schizophrenic. Literally. I mean, he's going, I don't know what I do, but I do this and I don't do this. But, you know, he's just going back and forth all the time. Paul was having, he had issues. You see, the civilized Christian believes that Jesus is working toward making us normal. There's a difference, though, between normal and healthy. And what the definition of those things are. When I read scripture, I see a history of people who sometimes were driven out of their minds by the living God. In a good way. It's something that drove them, drove them, drove them to do the things in life that they were to do. Paul was this way. John the Baptist was like, you read throughout Scripture these things. You know, I know this to be true. I know that if you are a believer, there was a time in your life, in early years of your life as a believer, that you believed that God could do anything. It's probably early on. You may have had some experiences in your Christian life early on in life as you were the uncivilized pioneer uh, believer that, that defied logical explanation, reasonable explanation, things that people ask you to pray for. You're going like, that's not going to happen. But you prayed for them anyway. You had this view of God. See, we start off that way. When God changes our life and truly changes our life, what happens is, is that you and I become people who, who realize that you know, we begin to trust. We have this deep faith in God that he can do anything in our lives and we'll throw ourselves at his feet. I remember early on, years ago, my first church that I was on staff when I was in seminary, and I wasn't too civilized back then, by the way. The thing was, is that there was this girl in our church, her name was Darnell. And Darnell was, was an amazing young lady, and she had been married for several years, and she had a couple of kids. And her, she had the, the most low-life guy for a husband I'd ever met. I'm not being judgmental now. But this guy, who he already had multitudes of affairs already, and she knew about him. He would leave for days at a time. Come back and tell her. She kept taking him back, and I'm going, you are an idiot, woman. That was my Christian response, my counseling advice. I was on staff of a church then, and, and the thing was, almost everybody agreed with me. But Darnell asked, and she said, you know, I believe that God can do anything. I believe that God can change his heart, and we can still have a, heart, a solid marriage. We began to pray for that, and we prayed for that, and we prayed for that. We prayed for that for several years. Last time I heard, he had turned around. He accepted Christ. He'd left his old ways. And for some remarkable thing, that their, their marriage had been healed. Now, I would never have believed that, but early on, when I was uncivilized, I believed that God could do anything. Is that where you are? Is that where I am now? I hope so. You see, when we are pioneers, when we're uncivilized, we have a big God. A God that can do anything. 
a God that when we read the book of Hebrews and it says that when God speaks to you in his word that you are to obey his word, you will follow his word and obey. But many of us become civilized. We become settled. And instead of believing and acting when God speaks to you, you explain it away or you simply replace obedience with another religious activity. I am really concerned in our world today. I'm concerned in this community that many of us have replaced a real, vital, active relationship with a living God who wants us to live an active life for him with simply religious activities. Folks, you know, it's good to go to Bible studies, but don't replace serving God and think just because you go to three or four or five Bible studies a week that that makes you a believer. That you may become so civilized. That's comfortable. It is comfortable to sit in a Bible study with a bunch of people who think like you do. Now it's good to go to one or two a week. I believe in Bible study, by the way. But if all you do is spend your time doing that, you, you, you've become civilized so much so that you, you're not letting God use you. And God has a bigger plan for your life than sitting in a circle and singing kumbaya. See, we are not called to be normal. We are called to be pioneers, uncivilized. That is the vision that God wants us to have so that we will not perish. The pioneer believer understands also that the mission of Christ is different than the settled or the civilized Christian. Verses 11 and 12, we're going to finish with this. Says this, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. True? Yeah. Yet, he or she who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We, God considers us, the, what he wants for us, greater than what he had for John. John prepared the way for the Messiah. God has something in store for us even greater than that. That's what it's saying. Then in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, I know that's not something you want to hear because so often in life what we want to do is we just want to go to church and go through our Christian motions and not stir the waters up. But what Jesus is saying there is this, we are at war. We are not living in a world that is neutral. And those of us who have accepted the call of Jesus Christ cannot live our lives in the material world. We cannot put a God in a little theological box and keep him on our dresser or on our coffee table with our Bible. What we must do is we must ask God, what is it that you want us to do? We're going to talk about that next week. We must understand that there is an unseen battle between invisible kingdoms and, and the people's lives are forever changed by what happens in this unseen spiritual realm. We are called by God to be warriors. We are called to be pioneers, uncivilized, who walk by faith and not by sight. And we do it in God's strength, even when we're fearful. Because the light we bring is the only hope the world will ever have. The church is to be an unstoppable force. In our world. And guess what? We are the church. 
If you're a believer, you're the church. The church is not this building. I love stories, and, and I, I was reading recently, and I was doing some research, and I came across this a few years ago, and I shared this with you. If you were here four years ago, you remember this. I'm sure you remember everything four years ago, right? And maybe 40 minutes ago. I'm not, not, not sure. But you know that animals, animals in group, different groups have different names. I thought all animals is kind of like as a group of animals. But for instance, cattle, when they're together, is called a herd. Thank you. I thought you could figure that out. Lions together were called a pride. Okay, you guys are sharp. Um, you know what crows, when you get a group of crows together, what they're called? Murder. Isn't that an interesting? I don't know what that means. One of my, the most interesting ones, though, is uh, buzzards. You know when you get buzzards together, what they're called? A committee. <laughs> I didn't make that up. I love it, though. It explains so many things. You know, flamingos, when you get a group of flamingos together, guess what they're called? Flamboyance. Perfect name, right? One of my favorite groups, though, and I heard this from uh, Erwin McManus, one of my favorite groups, though, is the name for a group of rhinos. Rhinos, rhinoceroses, can run at 30 miles an hour when it gets going. Isn't that amazing? I mean, a humongous animal, that horn out front, can run at 30 miles an hour. The only problem with the rhino is this. They can only see 30 feet ahead of them. So you know what they're called when you get a group of rhinos together? They're called a crash. I believe that's what God wants us to be. That's what I want to be. I want to be like the rhinos. You know, anybody that says they can see, you know, 20 years out or five years out or whatever is just a liar. I'm sorry. God doesn't call us to know what's out there. He says to live by faith. Take the next 30 feet. Take the next, go 30 miles. Go toward what it is that you want me to, want us to do. Ask that question. You see, the future is uncertain. The future is there to be created. God wants us to be a part of his future. And we need to move together as God's people. Like rhinos. 30 miles an hour, even if we can only see 30 feet ahead of us. You know why? Because what is it, 31 feet doesn't matter to the rhino. Because it better get out of the way. And because God says that when we are with God, you know, nothing can overcome us. We can overcome all things. God wants us to be a per- part of a greater purpose, a greater God than just being civilized and sit around being in comfort. He wants us to reach out to other people. I close with a story. <clears throat> and uh, this true story. You know, parents, sometimes we, we have this, uh, husbands and wives, you ever have a battle about how to parenting your, parent your kids? Men and women. Let me explain. I remember back in Virginia, we had this couple that we knew really well, went to our church, Frank and Donna Hazlett. They wouldn't mind me telling the story. Actually, I've told it before. But Frank and Donna had some boys, and they, they had some, you know, some real boys. And I remember one year, years and years ago, back when uh, we had a snow, like they had in Roanoke like this past week with 20 inches, but it was snow, and then it was, uh, there was like blizzard winds, and it was snow everywhere. It had kind of drifted up against the house. And one of their, one of their sons... One of their sons, who at the time was 10 years old, uh, they had like a one-and-a-half story house. Kind of, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It had this one place where you'd get out on a window and go out on the roof, and it was still like about eight feet to the ground. 
And guess what boys always want to do? You know, I, if I was a boy, I would do this. I mean, I am a boy, but anyway. But, uh, I mean, when I, when I was a boy, I'd want to do this. When I was a boy, I wanted to do this. One of the sons decided it would be cool to go sleigh riding off the roof of the house. But there was this big snowdrift down there and whatever. And, and the mom came home. Donna came home and found her, her son came out and looked out. And she came out the driveway and he was looked up. And here was her son slayed off the side of the house. And he had to drop about four feet, hit the snowdrift and go on down through the yard. He'd made this path. You don't know the whole story though. She looks down at the end of the yard at the end of the thing. And there's her husband <laughs> with her son. She had come out, she'd go, get off the roof! But dad told me I could do it. Get off the roof! I don't care what dad told you to do! And then they had this conversation, and, and basically Frank's logic was, you know, he's gonna do it anyway. I'd rather help him do it and at least be here if he breaks something. We never asked Frank to lead any parenting seminars, by the way. But I believe, when I thought about that for years, I think about this, I think about this. You know, many of us are like Donna. Now, nothing wrong with Donna, I know that's a normal thing. But we're like, we believe that, we've been telling people for years, you know, hey, the Christian life is a comfortable life. Don't get on the roof. Don't take the leap. Stay comfortable. Play it safe. When Jesus has been telling us in his word over and over and over again, hey, it might be worth the risk. I have something in store for you more than just playing it safe. My vision for you is something that's beyond what you can even imagine. But you have to ask. And you have to ask God, you know, is it more than just what I have now? Let me ask you, are you civilized? Do you believe that Christianity is just to be comfortable? I don't believe that's biblical Christianity. I think biblical Christianity is, is, is this passage we talked about and numerous other ones talk about as well, is that God wants us to understand that we're to take risk in faith for him. And if you're looking at this year and you're going like, man, I just don't hope this year is, you know, it's all right. Let me tell you, God has something in store for you. He has something in store for this church. We want to talk about next week and the weeks ahead. But we can't, we have to have the right vision. And that vision is the vision of the pioneer, the vision of the uncivilized person who's willing to accept what God has in store for them, even when they're fearful of it. I mean, that's the life worth living. That's what God wants us to do. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakcc.org.